but I think there is a significant difference between being intentional about something and having a goal or an objective, right? I think if you're intentional about something, then what you're saying to yourself is, I am going to accomplish this or I'm going to die trying. Have you ever let stress get the better of you? Want to know how to maximize your productivity? My name is Tommy Bowie. Follow me as I deep dive into the minds of successful entrepreneurs and industry professionals on the tools, tips, and strategies they use to overcome stress and boost productivity in their daily lives, especially when the going gets tough and the stakes are high. This is the Stressless Entrepreneur Podcast. My guest today has had the privilege of being part of starting and growing several software and service companies. He's helped companies grow from inception to viability through to sustainability. During the evolution of these companies, he's served on company boards and has been instrumental in their capitalization activities. He combines a unique blend of business acumen and technical knowledge, having originally been a developer who migrated to the business side. He now helps companies build great software products and solve data challenges for competitive advantage as a principal at the product and data consulting firm AWH. He's also an active angel investor, mentors and advisors, entrepreneurs and startups, as well as corporate innovation leaders. Today I have with me Ryan Frederick. Ryan, thank you for joining me on the Stressless Entrepreneur Podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Ryan, I wanted to get you on the show today because you've been in the startup space and the entrepreneurial space as an angel investor for quite some time now. And so I wanted to dig deeper into how our entrepreneurs can tackle the concept of stress management, especially when it comes to starting their own businesses. But before we do that, are you able to give us a little bit of history about yourself and what it is that you do? Yeah. So I've been fortunate to be part of starting six software companies and I'm now a principal at a product consulting firm. So we help clients build new digital products, clients from startups through mid-market up to enterprise clients. And, and we, we do some data consulting and solve some data challenges for some of those clients as well. And then uh, I launched a nonprofit, uh, which was kind of a branch of a larger nonprofit that's headquartered in Chicago in Columbus, where I am. And, and it really came out of you know, our work with some of our, our clients at AWH around uh, building products that we started financing some of the work and then started investing in, in clients and in companies as part of that. And so now, you know, I find myself, you know, in, in, you know, maybe four or five different careers um, after having, you know, written a book too. So, you know, it's always, it's always interesting to start peeling back the layers and having new experiences in, in different categories. So I guess that's what keeps me interested and keeps me ticking. Managing a team of 70, what's that like? And I guess, what's a standard day like for yourself? Yeah, running a professional services firm, you know, which, which we are, is um, more challenging than it appears on the surface because every services firm <clears throat> like ours is our team is the product, right? And so it's how effective the team applies their craft individually, how well they collaborate with each other, how well they collaborate with the client team, all of that and all of those sort of interpersonal dynamics, right, right? Make the difference between it going it going well and it and it going not so well. And thankfully, we've got a very experienced and talented team. I've been a partner at the firm now for nine years. The firm's been around for 25 years. So we've got lots of experience under our, our belt. So that helps, 
But I think every new client and every new client engagement is a little bit of, of an experiment because even though you've got processes in place and even though you try to bring the same sort of thinking and approach, right, and structure to a, an engagement, every engagement is slightly different because the client's participants are different and the product is different and what they're trying to accomplish is different and how aggressively they're trying to accomplish it is different. And so I think the real challenges are how do you take the processes, systems, and structure that you've put in place to try to even out as many of the dynamics and as, as many of the unknowns as possible, but then still be fluid and flexible inside of that so that you're not so rigid that you can't work in the best interest of the client and the best interest of the product. And so we try to take that approach with, with clients and, and with products. We also try to take that approach, you know, with our team and internally in that we try to be, we try to execute as, as efficiently and effectively as we can day in and day out, still with, with a layer of fluidity and flexibility to say, let's be situationally aware of what's happening so that we don't let our processes and systems and structure become so rigid that we actually can't do and can't perform what it makes sense to do in the moment. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to managing a, a software as, as a service company or when you're managing a delivery of a software product, is there anything unique that comes out that's relatively unique to a traditional business? Yeah, I think that there, there are. I think that when you're building a software product, there are these very unique transitions and you want to make those transitions as fluid and almost invisible as possible, but most of the time they're still there. One of the real you know, significant transitions is from what I call build mode into distribution mode. Right. So you're focused on working with some users to build the product in, in a way that it solves a problem that they value. And then you get to a point where you now have to start transitioning much of your thinking and much of your work from building the product that you've now validated solves the problem of a handful of users and a handful of customers to now thinking about what are our distribution challenges and how are we going to acquire other customers beyond the ones that we've been doing the validation with? And those are very different mindsets. They're, they take different skill sets. So the team that, that maybe has, has driven the process of building the product may not be the team, or it's certainly going to be a different set of people because it's a different set of skills to then drive distribution and, and to drive customer acquisition. And it's a very delicate transition. And oftentimes what you'll see and in, in the, the valley of death is represented in a lot of startup, you know, nomenclature and narratives. And I think that's kind of where that valley of death can come in is you're transitioning from build mode to sort of distribution mode. And because it, it is such a seismic shift for the team and the company that that's often where a startup can come out of, or anybody building a product, frankly, even a big corporate can come out of build mode, feel good about the product that they've built, and then realize, holy cow, we've really only just started to scratch the surface by building version one of the product. Now we've got to nail all of these other things in a world-class way, just like we've been focusing on building the product in a world-class way.
Yeah, and I think it comes down to you build a product based on a specific need. And when you test it, there's always these different new ideas that pop out based on user experience that, you know, there's always new improvements that you can make, but it's making that decision to say, well, where should we focus our efforts so that we ensure we're living to our values and mission, but we're also providing to the customer as well. Yeah, for sure. And I think that that's part of what you learn when you get into distribution mode, right, is now you're getting much more feedback because now you're getting feedback from strangers, right? Because oftentimes the users and the customers that we do early validation with are friendlies in some way, right? Somehow we know them, they know us, and they're okay, right? Being that sort of beta tester and and providing some of that validation. And so it's not the same dynamic as when you go into distribution mode and now you're exposing the product and driving awareness with complete strangers. And those strangers who you want to be customers and users now bring with them a whole set of requirements and criteria and value that your early validation group may not have brought and didn't ask about. And so you've got to enter into distribution mode fully prepared that the product may go in any number of directions, some expected and some very unexpected. Yeah. You mentioned before trying to keep I guess the product flow or the process is quite dynamic to manage the unknowns and also keeping it fluid. During build phase, it looks as though you need to manage the client's expectations as you're delivering the product. And then when you go to distribution, there's another layer of customer satisfaction that comes through as well. What are some of the common themes you see for both yourself and the team when it comes to stress and stress management? Yeah, I think the key to stress management, you know, whether you're talking about you know, a client of our product firms or our teams or an entrepreneur and a founder in general is, I think the first step is self-awareness, right? Do you know how as a person, as a team and as a company, you make decisions and you react to things and how you sort of, how you react emotionally, right? And if you're not self-aware and you don't, and your team's not self-aware and your company isn't self-aware and that's not a culture that you've, you've cultivated, then when things happen negatively and positively, but you know, the negative ones are typically the ones that are, you know, a little bit more upsetting, you've got to be able to know how are you going to deal with it? You know, what thought process are you going to go through? What decision-making process are you going to go through, right? To be able to pick a course and how you're going to respond and how you're going to make a decision around whatever this issue is. So I think it, be, I think it really begins with self-awareness and understanding what makes you tick and, and how you think as an individual, a team, and a company. Two of the things I would say that are important. You have to have a mindset of being consciously aware that there are going to be a series of unending problems, right? That confront you as part of building the product and taking it to market and trying to commercialize it. And those that go into this process, not fully aware of the fact that there are gonna be these unending problems confronting them, they often are unprepared to sort of deal with it on an ongoing basis. And I think that it becomes super stressful because it's almost like every problem becomes a surprise when I think if you're in the right mindset, a new problem presenting itself isn't a surprise. It's just, oh, here's the next one. And on the surface, that sounds really simple, right? 
But I think that's way more complicated to deal with if you don't have the mindset of we expect to have any number of unknown problems, right, present themselves to us. And that's okay because we expect it and we're going to find a way to work through them, right? And we've got our process for mitigation where if you're always in this mode of reacting and then being surprised by, you know, these problems, then I think that becomes really unhealthy and and that becomes really hard to deal with. I think the third thing is try to have as much order in place as possible given the fact that all of these problems are going to present themselves continually, some known and some unknown. And order can mean different things to different people and teams and companies. But I think that that if you're operating in a chaotic environment in, in what I call thrashing, if there's a lot of thrashing going on with you individually, you know, personally, or as a team or as a company, it's very difficult to then deal with this unending series of problems in a very rational and, and, and sort of sobering way because you're already thrashing. And the, the visual that I use and the reason I, I use the term thrashing is because if you think about somebody who's in the water, right, who doesn't know how to swim and they're trying to just tread water, right, they're thrashing in the water, which is physically exhausting, mentally exhausting. And ultimately, if you thrash in the water too long, you might drown, right? And so I think that a lot of individuals, teams, and companies exist in a very thrashing sort of mode ongoing. And then it's very hard for them to then deal with with unknowns and, and problems that get presented because their fundamental state is it is thrashing and now they're just thrashing more vigorously, right, when they're presented with problems. Yeah, I really like that analogy because when it comes to stress and stress management, the self-awareness part is key to allow you to make objective decisions on how you can move forward with whatever it is that you need to do. So I think if you're constantly worried or putting yourself in that emotional state where you start to make irrational decisions, that's where it can be harmful, not just yourself, but for the business as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I get I get some pushback on this, but I think that by and large business decisions that give you a chance to have those decisions be better than not is for business decisions to not be made emotionally, right? Business is business is business. And, you know, do I love our team? Absolutely. And do I love our clients? Absolutely. And do I love the the teams that I've had at companies that I've been a part of, of starting? Absolutely. But there is a difference between, you know, that sort of professional love, right? And personal love. And inside of that professional love, you still have to make really sound business decisions that are unemotional and almost emotionally detached. Yeah, I think when you're running a solo business, that decision-making can fall towards that personal, more subjective because you are the business. So there's a bit of leeway there. But when you're managing you know, 70 people, a large corporation, the decisions, you need a duty of care for the business, your stakeholders as well. So I completely understand that. Yeah, and I think there's an important point here too that, that as soon as you have any size team, even if it's, if it's a startup that has two or three co-founders or a startup that has a co-founder and now you know, two or three people have been added to the team. Every business leader's obligation is to work in the best interest of the business. And that even becomes in front of their own best interest, right? And so 
founders of companies that work in their best interest are almost never as successful as founders who work in the best interest of the company. And I think that's a very important distinction because I think a lot of founders start companies and they think because they're the ones that started it and they're the ones that had the idea or they're the ones that identified the problem or they're, they're the ones that identify, you know, that signed up the first customer or built the first product that somehow they're the center of the business and, and that the business should work in their best interest. And that's never really true. Founders and leaders of any company always should be working in the best interest of the business. And if you keep that perspective, it helps you stay a little bit more grounded and a little less emotional because then your, your decision process is what's in the best interest of the business, not what's in my best interest or this particular client's best interest or the team's best interest, what's in the best interest of the business fundamentally. And that is a really good grounding foundational position to, to process decisions through. Yep. Now, when we talk about processing decisions, you know, you're, you're managing not just your business, but you're also an, an angel investor. You have your non-for-profit and you've also released a book. Can you talk us through some of the, the key challenges of that process and just leading to what your book, The Founder's Manual, is about and I guess how it conceptualized? Yeah, it was one of those things where never intended to write a book and I became interested in the concept of flow several years ago. And I started to, to read a bunch of books, a bunch of papers on flow. And for those that aren't familiar with it, flow is essentially an unconscious state where you perform a very high level for whatever your craft is. It's often associated to athletes as being in the zone. And that's where most people have heard of it in that connotation. So I started to think about, well, how does flow relate to our professional lives and then how does flow relate to being an entrepreneur and uh, building a product and and starting and, and trying to grow a company and I just started to jot down some principles and then put those in an outline and ultimately those got in front of a publisher and, and the publisher and it's funny the publisher initially said we don't really get it and I said, oh, okay, well, I didn't explain it very well. And so I went back to them and explained it again. And, and then they were like, oh, okay, now we get it. Yeah. And yeah, we'll do the book. And so it was, it was that sort of, I don't know if, if that's a very sound process or if that is just a process that happened to work for this book to, to come out, the founder's manual. And then I simply took that initial outline of principles that I sent to the publisher I added some more principles to it and they became the chapters in, in the book. And then, and then I just started to bake out, right. The chapters and the ideas around each of those principles. And that's what, that's what ultimately uh, became the content that's in the book. And it was also a very interesting process because having never written a book before, I didn't know anything about the, the publishing process and I didn't really know anything about, you know, the steps and how to work with the publisher and all of that. And so it, it was a great learning experience. And I think one of the, and at the beginning, it, it scared me and was intimidating because it, as it doesn't really matter, you know, it, it's sort of what stage of life we are, when we try something new, we're always a little apprehensive and we're always, a, you know, a little concerned about how it's going to go, right, and have some anxiety around it. And so it ended up being the publisher worked with me to work through those challenges and, and to help educate me on the process. And now we have a second book coming out in probably two months and I've written it with the same publisher. So 
we've apparently established at least a reasonably good working relationship together that uh, we decided to go to bat one more time or on a book and take another run at it. But super fun to work on. And I think that it reinforced for me that I'm a very disciplined person. And when I'm working on a book, I write every day for 90 minutes. Sometimes those 90 minutes get thrown away and I go back and, and read what I wrote and, and I realize it doesn't say anything. It doesn't mean anything and nobody would get any value from it. And I delete all of it. So it's not that every 90 minutes every day is productive and valuable, but it creates a sort of disciplined you know, routine that then allows me you know, to, to crank out a book in, you know, the course of nine months, because I do work on it every day when I'm in, in writing mode and in book, you know, content creation mode. So, and that discipline loop is important to me because I think if there's anything that people should, should seek out, especially those that are entrepreneurial or have entrepreneurial ambitions is they better be able to prove to themselves. And this is not, right? Faking yourself out. This is legitimately being able to prove to yourself that you can operate with discipline. Because if you think that you're going to be an entrepreneur that just wings it and somehow that's going to work, that is not going to pay off. And I think one of the criteria of being successful, a successful entrepreneur is you get very intentional and that you can operate with discipline that you then thrive on and you then cherish and you then that you then value and you don't need anybody else to motivate you and to make you disciplined, right? That that comes from within. Yeah, I do want to dig deeper into the three concepts there, discipline, routine, and flow. We know that when we're first starting out, I guess, a venture, whether it be a startup or a new business, there's this motivation that comes through that kind of helps us push through some of the harder times. As that motivation disappears and we start to get more forced into the discipline and routine, how can someone manage that process or that, that transition? Because we're going to get to a point where things start to become, you start to doubt yourself when you're saying, you know, should I continue this? Is it worth it? Yeah, I think it's certainly a very important mental state, right? And I think that there is, I don't think it's just, you know, splitting hairs and in you know, it's just in wordplay, but I think there is a significant difference between being intentional about something and having a goal or an objective, right? I think if you're intentional about something, then what you're saying to yourself is, I am going to accomplish this or I'm going to die trying. And not literally, I mean, no one, you know, should take their own life because a company doesn't work or, you know, they don't, they don't have professional success, but there is that sort of measure of desire around it that is critical because, and the reason I like discipline over terms and, and narratives like hustle and grind and other things is because discipline requires you to do what needs to be done and what you know needs to be done when it needs to be done. And it is unforgiving if you ignore that. You know, the other things are, you know, sort of societally and culturally creative. And discipline is also something that is universal and it doesn't care whether you're in a good mood that day or whether you're in a bad mood. Whether other bad things have happened in your life or whether your life is fantastic. Discipline just wants you to do what has to be done to move the ball forward to what you've intended to accomplish. And 
if you ignore that, discipline also knows that you're now not being disciplined. And I think, you know, we've sort of proven that if you become undisciplined when you're saying that you intend to be disciplined, then you'll get punished for that, for being undisciplined when, when you're sort of telling yourself the narrative that you are operating in a disciplined way. Yeah. And when it comes to discipline as well, you being an angel investor, you, you must have a lot of, I guess, visibility of a lot of companies within that startup space. Do you see any common themes when it comes to stress and worry that come through, especially from startups that you deal with? Yeah, I think that the, the founders that are the most stressed are often the ones that, that are the least prepared and the ones that are least aware or less aware of the problem they're trying to solve and whether they're capable of solving it and how they're going to solve it. The founders that are the most confident, this is separating hubris from it, right? And ego and and because you'll run into founders that are super confident and overconfident. And when you start peeling back the layers, you're like, oh, you're super confident. You have a big ego, but you actually have no idea what you're doing and what you're talking about. So I'm talking about someone that is a founder that could be a good founder. The ones that are, that are super stressed are often the ones that are the least prepared and the least sort of aware of how they're, they're going about what they're going about. The ones that are less stressed know that they're solving a problem that's worth solving because they've put in the time and the effort into understanding the problem. They know they're capable of solving the problem because they understand the problem so well and they have validated their understanding of the problem with potential users and customers, right? That now they know they what team they need to assemble or already have assembled to then solve the problem. And I'll go back to order. It's not uncommon that the founders who are the most stressed and who are the most unprepared also have the most chaos in their lives. The founders who are the most prepared understand the problem the best, understand the roadmap to solve the problem the best, have the most order in their life. And so I, there are certainly corollaries there. And, you know, and that's why it's not just cliche, right? When people say that investors invest in people, invest in teams more than they do on ideas and products and categories. And I, I think that's largely true because at the beginning, and this is true even as a company gets bigger, but certainly at the beginning, it's all about the team, right? And if the team is in order, has order, right, to their process and they um, are prepared and they're thoughtful and it's not just them sort of trying to get you excited about something that they're excited about, but they have legitimate sort of substance, right, behind what's happening, that's when you get excited as, as an investor, right? When you realize that, this founder, this founding team has been aware of and has been exposed to and working on this problem for 10 years already. That's when I get excited as an investor because I'm like, holy cow, you guys have been working on this for 10 years in some way. And I'm not saying fully working on a product in a company, but aware of the problem for 10 years, right? Dealing with the problem for 10 years, you know, et cetera. That's when you know that you've got some founders and you've got a team that's potentially investment worthy versus a founder that, that identified a problem, 
you know, two months ago and knows very little about the problem, but already has a deck that has a TAM, right? That's outrageous and, you know, evaluation that's outrageous. And I don't know, there's just lots of little signs through the process that sort of indicate whether a founder is, is, is high stress or low stress. And I think there are corollaries to what the rest of their, their life looks like of whether they're high stress or low stress. Yeah, and I think we're seeing that through a lot with the culture of customers as well in kind of their expectations of new startups, especially in the software industry, because you're seeing a lot of companies come out with lifetime deals, early startup offers, and the customers are about who's the CEO, what's the team like, what have they done in the past, and I guess what's the roadmap that you guys want to achieve. And so there's a lot more transparency and visibility in a lot of the works that are coming through today. And generally see the more successful ones are the ones that are more transparent and honest with their, I guess, dealings and, you know, just the, the roadmap themselves. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think that goes to a level of confidence and confidence is built upon stability and it's built on order, right? And so those founders that are low stress have more order and the ones that are high stress have less and, and the ones that have high stress then inside of those potential customer conversations are often the ones, you know, trying to use really intense, aggressive sales tactics, right, to get somebody to buy or to make someone feel bad about not buying, et cetera. Whereas the founders, you know, that are low stress and who are built on some order, it becomes less impactful to them if a customer says yes or says no to what's happening, right? No single interaction, no single transaction gets them, you know, too high or too low. And so I think that's another aspect of low stress founders is that they, they keep a fairly even keel about their perspective around the business, right? And like when something bad happens, they don't get too low, but when something really good happens, they also don't get too high because they know that, that there's probably something that's not awesome to follow that great thing that just happened, right? And so the best founders, I think, are ones that can keep a very even demeanor through the highs and lows, which are inevitable through the process. And I think the high stress founders ride that roller coaster way too much, right? They're popping champagne when great things happen and they're ready to close the doors when bad things happen. And that is a really terrible existence. Yeah, using that and kind of leading into personality types. In your book, you talk about how introverts often make some of the best founders and product creators. Are you able to expand on that a little bit more? Because for me, in my personal experience, I know a lot of introverts who use their introversion as a form of limiting belief to kind of chase success. Yeah, I think that introverts are especially really early in the process of building a product and building a company have some innate advantages. And one of them is that they're typically better observers and they're typically better at listening. So when you're building a product early and you're doing a lot of problem understanding and user validation, it's really important that you do more observing and more listening than you do talking and you do sort of directing, right? That you're really letting the problem and the users direct the product versus your perspective to direct the product. And I think, so being an introvert, I think early in the process is really helpful there because introverts, I think by nature, develop really solid observation skills because they're typically the ones at a gathering 
that are standing back and sort of observing what everybody's doing and sort of what's going on. And I think that's really, really helpful. I think where introverts can get in trouble and where their value maybe diminishes as a company evolves and progresses is when it sort of goes back to the, one of the transitions we were talking about earlier, when you go from build mode to distribution mode, when you start going into distribution mode, now there's a little bit more extroversion that has to happen, right? Because now instead of talking to a really small group of customers and users, you're now talking to a much bigger group of customers and users and dealing with lots of interactions around the numbers of people that you're talking to and having conversations with about the product and company increasing. And that tends to become a little bit more extroverted activities, right? And so in the best scenarios, you've got certainly a mix of introverts and extroverts, or you've got people that are introverts who can be extroverted as needed, or you've got extroverts who can be introverted as needed, right? But I do think that introverts often get overlooked as really good, solid founders and entrepreneurs because they're often not as good at pitching as extroverted founders are. But I find that refreshing because an introvert tends to, when they're pitching and talking about their company and the product and themselves, they tend to sell themselves short and they tend to talk more about the problem and more about customers, which I think is is good. And that's where the focus should be, where I think extroverted founders often start talking about themselves first and talking about the problem and customers less. And I think that that gets extroverted founders in trouble when they're pitching and they're trying to raise money and doing things like that. And also trying to build teams. Although I will say around recruiting, this sort of flips back and forth, depending on sort of the role and the focus at any given time of what a founder is trying to get accomplished. I think that introverted founders often need help recruiting um, the best team because introverted founders may struggle with recruiting the team and sales and pitching to investors, as I was saying, or extroverted founders are probably, if we just sort of, you know, speak in generalities, are probably going to be better at telling the story and help in recruiting team members and, and sales than introverted founders. So I think that each has its strengths and weaknesses depending on the task and sort of the role and responsibility that's happening in any given time for a founder. But I think really early in the process, introverted founders get a little bit of a bad rap and I think can really leverage their innate sort of skills and perspectives to really dig into a problem and develop a really high value solution for customers to a problem. Yeah. And I think we see that perfectly with companies, with co-founders, you know, you're talking about Apple as an example, you have Steve Jobs, who's the extrovert, who's the creative, who can be in front of a camera. But then you have Steve Wozniak, when you're talking about someone who is more behind the lines, looking at the technical stuff and analyzing that stuff that's coming through. And I think in combination, they work well together, their strengths and weaknesses combined to kind of create that, that powerhouse of a, a company. Absolutely. Well, and I think that's one of the reasons that many investors now angel and up through, you know, seed and up to even, you know, series A, but it, you know, once you get to the series A part, it's, it's less of an issue, but in early investing rounds, lots of investors now won't invest in single founder companies. 
because they know, right, over their experience observing companies and investing in companies, that founding teams that have a really nice mix of introversion and extroversion and have those complementary skills, those are the teams that increase the odds of being successful, right? And if you're a single founder company, then you've kind of got to be a unicorn, right? Then you've got to be pretty special, right? Because you've got to be able to have those sort of technical and behind the scenes operator chops, but then you've also got to have the front of the house, right? Very public visible chops. And that's pretty rare to find in a single person. So that's why a lot of investors won't invest in single founder companies because they're looking to invest in a team that can counterbalance each other and work off of each other because that just, you know, we now know that increases the success of the, of the company potentially. Right. Is there anything you'd like to speak about that I've forgotten to mention? I think we've covered a lot of territory, which has been awesome. I still think that there is a lot of aspects of being a founder that are counterintuitive, right? And people don't really know what they're like until they get into it. And then some people never realize the counterintuitive aspect of many of these things. And then, you know, sometimes it gets frustrating or maybe it gets too late. But, you know, I think that if people before they make the, the decision to become a founder and start a company, if they sort of step back and say, all right, am I really prepared for this existence? And do I really understand what I'm getting into? I think that they have a chance of having a, a much less stressful experience than if they just sort of, you know, jump into the deep end of the pool right away. And then, and then, you know, going back to the you know term earlier, start thrashing and, and it becoming very high stress and, and, with a low probability of success, ultimately, you know, as part of that. Yep. Ryan, thank you for coming on the Stressless Entrepreneur podcast today. Thanks for sharing your story. I love the concept of product flow, discipline, and I guess the ability to be more self-aware when, when it comes to listening to yourself and just overall being more productive. Thanks for having me. Good to be with you. And I appreciate you getting up very early in the morning where you are, you know, compared to where I am. So thank you for doing that. There you have it, guys. Thank you for tuning into the Stressless Entrepreneur Podcast with me, your host, Tommy Bowie. If you like what you've heard today, please make sure you subscribe to our show and share this podcast with your friends. Leave us a review so that we can take on your comments, grow with you as a channel, and keep providing you quality, stress-free content. If you have a story to tell or just want to say hi, drop me an email on tommy at tommybui.com. I'll catch you all on the next episode.